Welcome back to the 93rd Academy Awards Ceremony, honoring the best films of 2020 and early 2021. I'm Andy. And I'm John. We're the hosts of a podcast called Settling the Score, where we discuss the great film scores. We're thrilled to get to be here to kick off the music portion of the evening. So without further ado, to present the award for score, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Meryl Streep. Is Meryl there? Meryl, are you there? I can see her. Can you hear us, Meryl? You can, you can hear us? You can hear us. Okay. I think her mic is off. Yeah. Uh, hey, Meryl, what happens if you click on the little uh, up arrow next to the, the mic symbol and then you can... Oh, what does she do? Oh, I don't right. see her anymore. Well, uh, do we have... Does anybody have ears on Meryl? All right. Uh, we got to do something. Why don't um, we play the nominee role? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I got that ready here. Um, uh, Andy, Andy, you got you to gotta give me permission to share my, my thing here. Oh, am I? Sorry. Oh. Sorry. Okay. Um, yeah. You got like, to go to the settings and then... I'm the uh, host. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, Okay, you should be able to. Now. Okay, okay. All right. The nominees uh, there it goes, there it goes. for Best Original Score are To Five Bloods, music by Terence Blanchard. Mank, music by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Minari, music by Emile Mosseri. News of the World. Music by James Newton Howard. Soul. Music by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and John Baptiste. Okay, okay fantastic. fantastic. Uh, oh, oh, can you hear? Can you hear there's like there's a. Like there's, a uh, John? Hello? Hello? Are we on a delay? Yeah, yeah. somebody, somebody is. is. Is the crowd noise still on? I think that might be adding a delay. Oh, yeah, let me, oh, turn, yeah, that let me turn that off. Here, is this Here, better? Is this better? Say yeah. something else? I don't know I don't if, this, know is if working. this is working. I think, Maybe it's you the think reverb it's the reverb effect. doing it? Yeah. What? Yeah. Yes. I'll turn that, I'll off, turn that off, too. Off too. Okay. Try that. Uh, yeah. Here, this should sound just like a regular podcast does now. Yeah, that's right. I think we're synced now. Hello? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, should we just do the show? I guess now that we just sound like this, uh, what else can we do? Yeah. Okay, here we go again. Yeah, here we are again. Although, maybe not quite as again <laughs> as it's been in the past. Yeah, not quite as here or as are. I mean, uh, I don't know. Has anybody observed out there that uh, this has been an odd year? How do you mean? I think this has been an odd year, Andy. Huh. Uh, you mean for you? Well, sure, for me. And I'll say for my movie going and for the finger that I feel I have on the pulse of the world of cinema. It's been an odd year for the finger, huh? Yeah. And the pulse. Uh, what, what's the pulse of the world of cinema, John? I don't know. I was trying to do my customary prognosticating about, well, what do I think is going to win? And I feel like my radar is just not online for that this year. I, I don't have a good sense of what the buzz is and what has affected culture a certain way because, uh, you know, culture hasn't really quite been online either. Well, I hear you, but it's also a little weird because the only place culture has been has been online. Uh, I'm a little surprised that your radar needs you to like get out of the house to work. I don't know how you make those guesses, honestly. You always do seem to have a strong sense. And I've been right every time. You have been right. And I'm saying I'm much less confident this time. All right. Well, 
We'll save your wrong guess for the end, yeah. because first we got to talk about them. Okay, well, how do you feel about these movies? Because I kind of feel like I don't know about these movies. What do you think? Uh, as we joked last time, we haven't really watched any new movies yeah. as normal this year. So this was like my visit to 2020, like we were doing a time travel episode, <laughs> except the year was 2020. I was like, oh, listen to all the things that were going on in 2020. Surprise. <laughs> and it was weird. Yeah. Boy, I don't know what to tell you about movie culture in 2020. A weird time, a weird selection of movies. That's uh, what I'm saying. That's what you just said. Yeah. Did you like these movies? Did you like any of these movies? Did you any like any of these movies? Yes. I liked any of these movies and I any liked some of these movies. Okay. But I won't deny I was bewildered by some of these movies as well. Yeah. How bewildered were you on a scale of zero to bewildered? I was a little bewildered. Uh, <laughs> I feel like there's one definitely really good movie on this list and then a few that I yeah kind of liked some things in and then some others that I I don't know. Here's something exciting going into this show. I genuinely don't know what you will have thought of any of these. <laughs> when you just said there's one really good movie, I was like, I think I know which one that is, but actually, I don't. I don't know what you're going to say. I don't know what so you're going to say. we'll at least have that going into this. Listeners, hey, guess what? We're more confused than usual, and we prepared less than usual because the uh, <laughs> the schedule's very tight here, and like we keep saying, we hadn't watched any of these going in, so this is going to be as casual as this conversation has been in a long, long while. As it already has been. Bring it. Do we have to... Uh, uh, go through the formality that we've done in past Oscar shows of laying out the criteria that the Academy uses to choose the winners. In the past, that has seemed helpful, at least in being an official articulation of what this conversation is even supposed to be. So sure, let's say it. Although hopefully a listener has heard those episodes. Don't pick this as your first episode of this podcast yeah. to listen to. <laughs> Don't pick this certainly as your first Oscars episode. Of All right, podcast. but let's read it out because we always need a refresher. I guess. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences says, now I got to look it up. <laughs> Oscars.org is getting so many hits right now. So many people trying to read the rules, obviously. Um, <clears throat> okay, for the uh, annual ceremonial reading from Academy Awards Rule 15 Special Rules for the Music Awards, Section 4 Voting, Clause A, works shall be judged on their effectiveness, craftsmanship, creative substance, and relevance to the dramatic whole, mm. and only as presented within the motion picture. Okay. Glad you said those words. Maybe we'll even say some of those words again, but let's just dive in already. Time to dive. So we're going to do these in alphabetical order. Yeah. Which one comes first in alphabetical order? Gosh, this is already problematic. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about that because, <laughs> yes, usually the definite article to begin a movie title is not counted as a word to be alphabetized by. So does the duh at the beginning of the five bloods count as a definite article? Sure it does. Should it be penalized about its privilege of getting to skip the alphabetization because it's a colloquial variant of the definite article? Uh, Would you like me to do a ceremonial reading from the Chicago Manual of Style, <laughs> section 17? No, I'm not going to do that. I don't think the Chicago Manual of Style addresses Spike Lee directly. <laughs> well, that's, that's only fair because Spike Lee doesn't address them. But I was going to say that even if you do drop the definite article from the beginning of the title, we learned last year that if there is an Arabic numeral in the title of a movie as there was in 1917, then you are to alphabetize that as though you were writing out that number with letters. And so the number five begins with the letter F, so it would still be alphabetically first, no matter what you do with duh. Mm -hmm. Spike Lee wins again. <laughs> yeah, that's how he gets you. <laughs> that was the plan all along, clearly. All right, so the first selection is Da Five Bloods. 
to Five Bloods was written by Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo and Kevin Wilmot and Spike Lee. It was produced by Spike Lee and a bunch of other people, and it was directed by Spike Lee. It's about Delroy Lindo, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. as Vietnam War veterans who returned to Vietnam in the present day to dig up gold that they buried there during the war and find the remains of their squad leader, played by Chadwick Boseman in flashbacks. Delroy Lindo's son joins them. He's played by Jonathan Majors. A bunch of other people are in the movie, and lots of stuff happens. Music by Terrence Blanchard. All right, Andy, I'm going to start the bidding here by saying that we covered a Spike Lee movie with a score by Terrence Blanchard two years ago for our Oscar episode, and that was Black Klansman. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put it right out there that I liked Black Klansman significantly better than I liked this movie. Countered with the opposite. I liked this movie significantly better than Black Klansman. Wow. Wow. I did not see that coming. Tell me why. Generally, my feeling about Spike Lee is that he is a bold, daring, cinematic stylist that I find his movies vibrant and full of surprises and interest, combined with someone who is just fixated on being political and confrontational in ways that I get tangled up thinking, I, I don't know if you've made a point, I don't know if that makes sense, I don't mm -hmm. know if you're actually doing what you think. Yeah. And in Black Klansmen, I felt like the movie that he made independent of it being sort of topical and conversation starting, I wasn't really engaged with it. And every time it turned in a political direction, I was like, well, is that, are we really exploring this or are we just kind of pressing the button? That was my experience the whole time. Whereas this movie, that was my experience intensely for the first half. And then by the end, I was like, well, that was just a pile of stuff he wanted to put in a movie. And some of it was pretty compelling. And I got to watch some interesting acting and crazy scenes. And uh, I felt like I had gotten offered some movie time. <laughs> okay, I'm a little relieved to hear that maybe we're not quite so far apart either, because yeah, I definitely had that bewildered feeling that I didn't feel like I was on the wavelength with the movie for the first half. I wasn't sure to what degree it wanted me to like its characters and what they were doing, to what degree it was telling an actual story or just giving me a history lesson slideshow. And I actually felt like Blanchard's music, which by itself, I think is very fine writing. I didn't feel like it was helping me in the first half of the movie. And yeah, and I will admit that towards the end, the, some of the experience did add up to something. But I guess I was just more on board with the story and the characters overall with Black Klansman. I just felt like I was struggling through some kind of a mire with this one. I mean, my theory is that Spike Lee just likes assembling movies out of a lot of disparate stuff. Yeah. You said you weren't on its wavelength. I, I'm not sure it has a wavelength. Yeah, okay. I think it's just a project. I guess that's probably what I'm going to wind up saying then. My impression for a long time has been that Spike Lee and Terrence Blanchard are a strange long-term collaboration because I don't think that they share a wavelength. Huh, yeah. I don't feel like Blanchard and Lee are really coming from the same kind of temperament. They are just both sort of contributing from different angles to the same project, and they both seem happy with whatever <laughs> does or doesn't arise from the friction between their two different styles. Yeah, there's definitely friction between them. The first substantial piece of Blanchard's score in the movie is for this flashback to the Vietnam War.
comes after we've seen a lot of historical footage on the screen with Spike Lee's annotations about the state of race relations and a lot of heavy stuff about American history. Yeah, this movie starts with as confrontational a montage as he can do, yeah. uh, which I found somewhat distasteful because it shows actual human deaths for no clear... Uh, yeah, that was hard to watch, and he's just kind of daring you to watch it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that sums up everything I dislike about Spike Lee, forcing us to sit through the actual film of the infamous photo of the Vietnamese yeah. guy getting yeah. shot in the head. That was rough. Why are we watching an actual real-life murder on screen? Because it's shocking. Purely, it's because it's shocking. And where are we supposed to put that in our politics? Spike just wants you to be shocked and sit up straight and feel that he's sparring with you. Yeah. The attitude seems to be like, you have to look at this because it was real. This movie's going to be that real. And so then for him to slip into a movie that's uh, movie tropes is like, well, how are we supposed to take this? Yeah. So, you know, I'm watching this movie, trying to pay attention to the music. The first time there's music for me to pay attention to, there's a big old war shootout. could this possibly mean? Why is there this kind of straightforward, august, broad, Americana, militaristic war movie music, which is skillfully accomplished, but after what he's made us watch, all of the historical injustices that the characters themselves have been invoking, in addition to Spike Lee invoking them on top of the film as it's going by, he can't expect us to take this sincerely at face value. Yeah. But the music seems to be taking it at face value. Or is it? Or is the fact that the music is at some other perspective than the filmmaking? There's meant to be productive friction with that? I don't know, and I think you're right that there isn't really an answer. So I'm hearing that on your zero to bewilderment scale, we're at bewilderment here, right? Yeah. This is our bewilderment number one? (laughs) That's certainly where I started out. And I didn't uh, move off of that level for quite some time because he comes back with this real Copeland, trumpet, patriotic nobility stuff for Chadwick Boseman's speech about how they're entitled to this gold that they're transporting as sort of an ad hoc reparation that he wants to enact. I say the USA owe us. We built this speech. So what you saying, blood? I'm saying... We repossess this goal. I mean, and this is obviously a very complex thought, and the movie has already given us reason to not totally trust all of these characters or think that they're necessarily up to any good, but obviously Spike Lee means to wield some sort of moral righteousness, which no matter how sympathetic I'd like to be towards that, I couldn't help but feel like, well, this music is just not meeting this uh, the same way that I am. Definitely one of the important themes in the movie is black Americans' tortured relationship with American identity, right? Yeah, quite explicitly. So the issue of defining the sound and feeling of American identity is crucial to the movie. And that's what this music traditionally does in a traditional way. It doesn't seem to be reopening the question of what America sounds like in music. Yeah, Spike Lee has unmistakably instructed his audience here to have our guard up about what America claims about itself. 
I was ready to do that, but then this music that sounds exactly like what America has been claiming about itself forever, in movies especially, I didn't know how to reconcile that. Yeah, related scene a little later in the movie, the guys are listening to Vietnamese propaganda radio that is explicitly trying to demoralize black American soldiers and peel them away from their loyalty to the U.S., and they hear about the assassination of Martin Luther King, and they are anguished, and they have an argument about whether they're fighting the wrong enemy. I love you, man, but you're wrong. Dead wrong. You're talking about Dr. King. You're talking about a man of peace. And that's what got Dr. King killed. I'm as mad as everybody. All us buds got a right to be, but... We bloods. Don't let nobody use our rage against us. We control our rage. This is the complexity of this whole movie. It's about what you do with anger and the feeling of statelessness and, you know, how do you find identity in war? All this complicated stuff that he's trying to make as complicated as possible. Right. And Blanchard is working within the cliche that you'd think would be exactly what's being interrogated here. Yeah. Blood on blood. He seems to have adopted it sincerely as the language with which he's going to write the score. And that is bewildering. Trying to sit here and make sense of it, I have to ask myself, all right, is it trying to fold their story into traditional Americana or is it setting it apart? Or, you know, who's believing what? So I think the paradoxical aspects of this kind of parallel what's paradoxical about Spike Lee movies generally, which is that he brings this critical stance, like, let's not accept the lies we've been told. Let's not accept all of the old tropes that are actually full of hidden injustices. Let's be angry about them. Right. And then he also is clearly savoring getting to make movies <laughs> that are founded on old tropes that he loves because he loves movies. Can you think of some movies that he loves? Uh, movies that he quotes, movies that he puts the poster of the movie in the movie. Right. I mean, <laughs> in this movie, for example, Apocalypse Now, from which we see the poster. The thing that really angered me the most was using the Ride of the Valkyries quote for them. Just on the boat. Just on a boat. Just like, okay, taking some vehicle into Vietnam. I, I don't know. You don't get to wield an entire other movie's worth of complexity and awfulness at me just because you play the music at But it. also, I mean, the use of Ride of the Valkyries in Apocalypse Now is like, it's like Robert Duvall's megalomania that he loves the smell of napalm, right? That's what it's for in that movie. Yeah, it's for the helicopters. Yeah. It's for the overblown military machismo riding into battle treated ironically. Right, the Americans delivering death on a huge scale. Yeah, yeah and eh, they're riding a boat. Right, I think he wanted it to be an ironic come down, but like you said, it was already ironic, so it's just a reference for the sake of a reference. Yeah, he also likes uh, the treasure of the Sierra Madre, apparently. Yes, he does. They don't need no stinking badges. You know, it would be a cute way to reference that, have someone say, we don't need no stinking badges. Almost too cute. Yes, it is. My impression is that Blanchard comes at the music in a similar spirit of being able to hold love for the tropes in his head at the same time as criticism for what those tropes embody if you analyze them. I think he is sincerely using the cliché of American military honor language mm -hmm. because he's moved by that. I think he's trying to use that language to express a deep melancholy alienation from the ideology of that perspective 
very sincerely without concern for the contradiction there. Okay. I think that's a failing because the contradiction is there. He just brings up those war drums. Here's the rat-a-tat-tat. Yeah. I don't think that it is signifying a special to Five Bloods thing. I think it's just there because it's a movie thing, and uh, movie things are part of the assemblage. Yeah, that's right. He's treating it very sincerely, and he's good at it. But yeah, there's a contradiction that doesn't feel totally digested to me. Like that cue you were talking about where Hanoi Hannah is talking to them over the radio and they get all riled up by it, kind of, you know, crystallizing their outlook on things and their camaraderie around it. You know, it's sort of a big moment in the movie. And then the music gets unceremoniously cut off when we jump to the next scene. And I felt like, who's disrespecting whom here? Did you mean to? Let me tell you. Out of all of us, My antenna always bristle at harsh cutoffs like that because they communicate a lot. And if they're deployed without a lot of thought to them, they really take me out of things. Why would you play this music all about military nobility and put it up against these people firing their guns in the air and galvanized for their cause of justice and then take the rug out from under them like that? It just felt kind of thoughtless to me. I think Spike Lee likes... Terrence Blanchard because his music is bold, it comes on very strong, and Spike Lee is attracted to strong, bold gestures. This is what it sounds like when a snake jumps out of a tree in this movie. Of all the things in this movie, why does that get that... (laughs) That cue. Because uh, he chose to. And Spike said, great, that's so bold. (laughs) Once I got clear that that was the attitude, I was sort of able to just take it for what it was worth. But I certainly was equally confused by what is the intention here. There was a lot of feeling of like, does this thing in the movie know about that other thing in the movie? Yeah, exactly. Does it know about it? Blanchard shows himself to be very adept at spinning out this kind of music. There were definitely some places where I felt like, well, he's just, you know, nobody told him to stop. Why is the music going through this scene? The nighttime scene they were on the campfire and Mm -hmm. this scene takes a lot of turns. Damn. Starts out there complaining about mosquitoes, and then one of them discovers a gun hidden in the other's bag, and they get into a fight about that, and then they're kind of at each other's throats, and they're being kind of petty, and this very placid and noble music just kind of puts its head down and keeps going and the fact that it's just playing through something explicitly not noble on screen you can't get up and do it your damn sir i got to get up off my damn rock and walk over there and get it you sitting right there you get it you see it big paddle ass kind of makes me feel like I'm not sure that I should be taking the music's word that anything is noble or is it even paying attention. I found that scene hard to deal with. And then, again, this excellent music for the scene where they find the gold down this mountainside and they're digging it up with a metal detector. I got a hit. 
this scene went on way too long, I thought, and I just felt like Spike Lee let Blanchard do his editing for him by just having this music run on and on. Yeah, and what does it mean? It's heroic gold-finding music. It's a big moment. It's exciting. It feels cinematic because it reminds us of movies, but what is being gotten at? So that's how I felt about it for... Yeah, the first half of the movie. I think that in the second half, he does some things with the music that I had been wishing he would do through the first half. It's funny. I feel like in the second half, he did some things with the movie that I've been wishing he would do. Wait, who's he? Spike Lee. And he sort of wandered into the territory where Terrence Blanchard was already operating. And oh, now they're in sync. Well, I thought Blanchard did the same thing. There's more tension and complexity in the music towards the end. To me, the standout cue was the emotional climax of the movie, which I guess we'll hold back on absolute spoilers. But one of the characters faces his demon, which we see, and Mm -hmm. gets a kind of catharsis. Yeah. This is treated as an operatic scale of emotion, a full cathartic flourish with the camera and a scene that goes deep into this emotion. And then Terrence Blanchard's very pretty, very affecting, very large scale emotional cinematic music melds with it. And oh, this, like the two halves of my brain linked up and look at this, this is quite successful. I agree that was successful and I wrote that down too, that this music for that scene is what I wish I'd been playing throughout so much of the other stuff. There's so much emotional complexity in this music. There's a sense of pathos and things have gone wrong, but we can still find grace in them. If you took this music and played it over the earlier scenes of the gunfight or the gold finding, you know, just giving me a little help with feeling the complexity of things, I was missing it. And yeah, I really liked it when it showed up. I mean, something that I think I'm going to be able to say about all five of these movies is that I think they sound really nice on the soundtrack away from the movie. And I really admire Blanchard's commitment to big, direct old-fashioned orchestral expression. He really does this style, and, you know, I don't think any of these other movies we're going to talk about are quite as solidly doing the thing that this show is often about, you know, the hundred years of film music, the traditional art of film music. He's quite good at putting across uh, strong emotion in that language, and when you listen to these cues, apart from the movie... I thought, oh, I, I wish someone would let him do a just a, you know, Fall of Rome movie or something, <laughs> a family saga or whatever, because it's the fact that a Spike Lee movie is so crazy, a melange of competing stuff that makes this music seem like, well, that might be overkiller. I don't know what that's about. Yeah, exactly. So then late in this movie, Spike is doing such traditional Hollywood big emotional things that, uh, oh, now this seems like it could be the movie that this music is for. That's interesting that you experienced it as Spike Lee moving towards Blanchard and I experienced it the other way. I mean, I think we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about exactly the same thing, yeah. Yeah, like you're saying, it's always satisfying to hear Blanchard flex his muscles, which are prodigious in doing this. I mean, you're right, it makes me wish I could hear him do this for lots of other movies, other filmmakers. 
There's just something so idiosyncratic and weird about Spike Lee's filmmaking. It's true. And there's something very not idiosyncratic. <laughs> That's right. There's something very unweird about Blanchard's very traditional attitude and skill set in some ways. I mean, originally he's a jazz guy and you think of right. that as his sort of identity, but he clearly has thrown himself fully into this language. Yeah, you know, on this show we're talking about not just the music, but the way that the music aligns with the movie and uh, just the alignment here. The alignment is coming at a different angle or as you said maybe there really isn't an angle and i just kept craving one yeah well who wouldn't but yeah it's so weird that these two guys are one of the long-standing collaborations yeah and i think almost every time i've seen one of the movies that they did together i thought yeah i don't know if they're on the same page i think they just (laughs) fundamentally aren't and that is something that they're both attached to How did you feel about the use of the duduk, which is an Armenian double reed instrument that I had to look up, but I knew there was some kind of exotic wind instrument being played. Yeah, um, that was in there to show uh, ethnic stuff. Yeah, how do you feel about that? You're telling me it's Armenian and not, say, Vietnamese. It is certainly not Vietnamese. Yes, that is an Armenian instrument that has uh, gotten a little bit popular in film scoring as a mysteriously unfamiliar exotic sound. Uh, On the one hand, I want to say that, yeah, you know, if something makes a sound that you like, why shouldn't you be allowed to compose for it? And I think stuff he writes for it sounds pretty good. But uh, then on the other hand, you know, Spike Lee is making this movie about who gets to be a part of what culture and who likes it and doesn't like it. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I really thought it through. Like, is this anything other than pure Orientalist exoticism? Uh, And as far as I can tell, no, it's just there for all the old reasons, not for some new... 2.0 2.0 reasons. It's just the thing that it's always been, which is that there's uh, there's another. It's mysterious. It's beautiful. It's a little like a keening voice. That's true. Sometimes there's a voice in the score. Sometimes there's also the voice of Marvin Gaye. Mother, mother. Apparently they found some Everybody old studio session stems of just his solo voice. Yeah, that was pretty cool to hear acapella. It was totally cool to hear acapella Marvin Gaye. The scene of the movie that it just plays through, I kind of got the impression that, well, he's just playing this through it because he's already done the thing of playing Blanchard music just through it, kind of indiscriminately. And I felt like, uh, you know, the same as I did for Blanchard. I love this music. I love to hear acapella Marvin Gaye, but why is it just going and going? Yeah, and that's really the contradiction here. When Spike Lee uses Marvin Gaye, he wants you to be thinking about all of the political connotations and implications. He's not just playing it as music. And when he uses a snare drum and swelling brass full of the honor of military service, he doesn't want you to think about all of the implications. (laughs) I don't necessarily bristle at any of these things in themselves. It's just that in a construction as confrontational as Spike Lee has absolutely declared this movie to be by that introduction, you know, you're accountable for all of your tropes. You're asking for the audience to make an accounting. Well, golly, Andy, it started out sounding like we were going to have different takes on this, and it turns out that we really don't. (laughs) Mostly we don't, yeah. Isn't that the most moviest of all? It's beautiful. 
It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> hey, I do want to say that I really appreciate that the credits included the names of all of the musicians in the orchestra who played on this score, which a lot of movies don't do. Most movies don't do. I thought that was cool. So I do want to give them a shout out for doing that. Yeah, it was incredibly thorough credits with all of the, you know, greenskeepers in Thailand and everything, which was cool. It's a big production to make a movie. And that's what a Spike Lee joint is. It's like, we made a big movie. And if you can appreciate that, then you'll enjoy this. And I guess I got on that page. I saw the appeal of unabashedly messy pile of the movie. There's definitely good stuff in it. There's definitely good performances you can pick stuff out of this pile to be appreciated on many different levels but right but relevance to the dramatic whole what dramatic hole what are you talking about <laughs> all righty let's see if the next thing up has a dramatic hole right. that we could grok any better yeah down the alphabet we go to mank Mank was written by Jack Fincher, produced by Sion Chaffin, Eric Roth, and Douglas Urbanski, and directed by David Fincher. It stars Gary Oldman as Herman Mankiewicz, the screenwriter of Citizen Kane, as he writes the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Also stars Amanda Seyfried, Lily Collins, Arliss Howard, Tom Pelfrey, Charles Dance, Tuppence Middleton, and other people. Music by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Do you like this movie? Um, I found it bewildering. <laughs> I uh, I like the movie that this movie is about. Oh, sure. Citizen Kane. Why, that's one of the best movies ever made, in my personal humble opinion. <laughs> Citizen Kane has also got a really good score on it. My goodness, yes. That would be a score worth talking about. Yeah, we've mentioned before that Citizen Kane, the famous auteur product of Orson Welles, has a score by Bernard Herrmann. In fact, his first film score in Hollywood. Yeah, I do hope we get to that score someday. John, hearing you call Citizen Kane an auteur product offends me because I don't feel like you're really giving enough credit to the screen writer Herman J. Mankiewicz. What now? You know what I'm saying? I don't know if giving Orson Welles full credit for everything that Citizen Kane is about is really fair. I feel like an untold story would be that of Herman Mankiewicz, the screenwriter. How does that sound to you? Can I make it? How's my pitch? Well, let me ask you this. In this movie about Herman Mankiewicz writing Citizen Kane, are there going to be a lot of references to the actual Citizen Kane? Mm-hmm. Um... There's certainly going to be a lot of affectations. Oh, okay. Well, that might be good enough. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what to make of this very weird movie. I also don't know what to make of this movie. I went into it kind of thinking I was going to like it because, you know... Because you like that movie. I like Citizen Kane. I like old movies. Right. I think, you know, David Fincher is nothing if not stylish. Sure. You know, doing a stylish throwback movie about Hollywood in the old days. Well, that sounds fun. I like the Coen Brothers movies when they do that. Love those. Gary Oldman's going to be Herman Mankiewicz. You know, someone's going to play Louis B. Mayer. And, oh, that could be really cool. And apparently it's very arty and black and white. I'm going to like this. And then (laughs) almost as soon as it started, I was like, what? What what are they doing? I don't understand what they're doing. And that pretty much persisted to the very end. This is, again, a movie where I liked the second half better than the first half. Mm, I think that's true for me, too. But I don't think that it really hangs together as its own movie, really. I don't really understand why anybody thought this movie would appeal to anybody who wasn't like a devoted fan of Citizen Kane. Yes, or even to them. (laughs) I just feel like I'm not sure what this movie has to offer besides that 
<laughs> I'll quote you from our 95 episode when we were talking about Nixon and you said, they made Citizen Kane again, don't you see? Yes, this time they didn't even make it again. <laughs> they obviously had it in mind that they were going to do a Citizen Kane-like retelling of a story ancillary to the making of Citizen Kane, right? I mean, it's told with all of these flashbacks and piecing together a narrative by talking with a roster of people and each of them add something to the story that we're understanding about the great man that's right talk about cute they put lines as though from a screenplay on screen every time (laughs) they do a flashback to remind you you know why i think they did that so as to uh prompt the academy to nominate it for a screenplay (laughs) because that's what they do when they show the montage of the screenplay nominees right they show oh typewriter a typewriter made these words look at a typewriter go well guess what didn't work they did not nominate this for best screenplay and it is notable that this screenplay do you know who it's by remind me jack fincher david fincher's father who died years ago who wrote this in the 90s at his son's encouragement you know this project has been sitting in david fincher's to-do list for a long long time with a screenplay by his father and that is a touching family connection But this screenplay, I think I concur with it's not being nominated. And I think I've said before, I'm skeptical about biopics and historical reenactment movies because it's hard to do things justice or know when to give up on doing things justice. And this just felt like over-researched, over-clever. Halfway through, I was like, this is basically like a really long, self-serious episode of Drunk History. (laughs) Oh, look, that guy is playing Georges Kaufman. Huh, cool that someone dressed up as him. They really traded a lot on the history of the drunk, that's for sure. Oh, it is a drunk history, yes. I don't know what it was trying to get across other than the interest someone feels in reading history. Like, I just read a really interesting book about Herman Mankiewicz. They could make a movie of that. It's actually not true when people say they could make a movie of that. You have to actually make a movie of it. And I don't know what movie this was. Have we made clear the movie? It's in black and white. It's in a very stylized, referential, black and white, sort of like a music video idea of a 40s movie the whole time. Music video idea of a 40s movie. Okay, well, that's a springboard that we can jump off of to talk about the score more carefully. Yes. I feel like this score has two different moves that it goes to. It starts out with the main title music. That's the first thing we hear. And then a lot of material throughout the movie that is in a similar world as this seems very obviously to me to be an attempt at a Bernard Herrmann impression. Yes. And then the other thing that the music in this movie is doing is period jazz. Mm -hmm. Were there quotes there? I don't know. Did I hear some air quotes? You heard something. Look, I love period jazz. (laughs) I love the big band stuff from the time period the movie takes place. And I honestly think that Reznor and Ross have done a pretty good job recreating it. I dig a lot of these pieces. I think there's some really good writing for horn sections. I think they pretty convincingly do Benny Goodman, Gene Krupa kind of business in a bunch of places that Mm -hmm. I think it's a good recreation of that kind of music. The air quotes around period come
come from the fact that none of that music was playing in movies <laughs> that were made during this time. Right. Having this old-timey jazz music playing during this movie that is about old-timey movie times, it just makes me feel like I'm in the lobby of the Tower of Terror ride at Disneyland. Like, oh, <laughs> this is old-timey business. You know, we're doing old-timeys here. Yeah, anyone who says old-timey, you know that the next thing they say is not going to be enlightening. It's just an aestheticized, you know, it's a fantasy. It's essentially a form of exoticism. Remember in the last episode when I said I don't really go for retro? This is a retro score. It is not a score in a 40s style. Yeah. It is a retro 40s score that has been done with a lot of panache. Sure. I want to applaud the panache. I really do because I think more people should write in this style today. But like write it today. <laughs> you know, I was never not conscious of it being a gag, a bit that they were doing something like they would do in the old timey times. Yeah, if the point is to put us in period, it's got to do better than 30 Rock. This just sounds like 30 Rock. (laughs) Well, 30 Rock is a great example of somebody writing this music from a perspective of today and making it have a new thing to say. Yeah, it's retro because that's a fun way of adding some comic energy to something that has nothing to do with period. But the comic energy is what comes first in 30 Rock, and the retro is what comes first in this. But again, they did it nicely, if you listen to it. They did it really nicely, and I think they were having, palpably having so much fun doing it that they went as long as they were allowed because they loved it. There is a ton of music in this movie. The soundtrack is 90 minutes long of just one piece after another of either big band music or sort of Hollywood Bernard Herrmann music or sometimes kind of a quirky squeezed through a strainer Bernard Herrmann music, you know, with extra quirks and clicks and slaps and uh, these TikToks in the winds. sense of a topsy-turvy world of Hollywood, and all of that is great. You'd think I'd love that. (laughs) I kind of loved it. I was excited on behalf of the musicians that got to play all of this and arrange all of this. It seemed like, what a fun project, and I think that they must have felt that too, because there's just a ton of it, more than the movie knows what to do with. Speaking of what the musicians must have felt like, I mean, did you see how they recorded this score? Yeah, this was after lockdown, so they did it one at a time. Yeah, that's right. This score, and, you know, probably to varying degrees, all the scores we're talking about, but I heard an interview where they were talking about the extreme measures that they had to go to to record this score during the height of the pandemic lockdown, yeah, which included delivering sterilized microphones to all of the orchestral players at their homes and, you know, giving them a click track to record again. And you can see footage of these terrific session players playing in their pajamas at home. Then they mixed it all together and made a score out of it. And I definitely want to commend that effort. And I think that the mixing, the engineering, it all sounds great. It does. There are some tracks on here where they've done some kind of careful filtering to give the sound of, you know, 30s radio mics without doing phonograph crackle and all of that. They've just changed the engineering to give it a period sound. Yeah. There are so many moments of listening pleasure to be had going through this soundtrack. 
probably shout out credit is worth giving to the orchestrator of the symphonic stuff was Conrad Pope, who's one of the top orchestrators in town, and he did the arranging. And the arranging of the big band stuff is Dan Higgins, who's one of the top saxophonists in LA, but also uh, an arranger. You know, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, uh, we could talk more about them. In fact, we're going to have the opportunity to talk more about them. Oh, is that so? Yeah, maybe. Because we're going to do a whole Nine Inch Nails episode after this. Yeah. Is why. Okay. You know, they made demos at their computer, but the polish of these arrangements is a big part of the appeal. Yes. And again, that's done really expertly. I just love the whole brass section going, wow, wow. Real panache, like you said. And you know, in the first 10 seconds of this movie, when I thought, oh, they're doing old movie, quote unquote, yeah. with Bernard Herman references. Anyone dipping into that language, oh, there's a lot that can be done there, as we attest on every episode of this show. And I kind of liked that it seemed sort of to be hovering at a distance from the movie. Well, maybe it's going to be kind of infused with irony. Won't that be interesting? I was very hopeful about what the upshot of that was going to be during the first cue. I agree. I was really taken by the first cue, too. The first cue promises a lot. It seems to be taking direct inspiration from Herman, where it sets up a tension, a relationship between two big, interesting chords. It goes back and forth between those two chords, you know, just like what Herman does in the Vertigo main title, Mm -hmm. and in Taxi Driver too, for that matter. Mm -hmm. That's definitely something that they're trying to do in this main title. And the chords are very evocative. And I really sat up and thought, oh, wow, I'm in for something really great with this score when I listen to the main title. And I thought this is self-aware in sort of the way we were saying the Blanchard music isn't. Like, it knows exactly what tropes it's digging into. That's the point. But it's also expressing something. Won't that be stimulating? But... I think the movie's failure to show me where it was coming from or who it was talking to or what it believed made me realize pretty early on that uh, the music was just doing an impression, which is different from doing something. Yeah. I mean, that unfortunately was the impression that I came away with. It's making a movie about the making of Citizen Kane. It's pulling a lot of the same shtick that was in Citizen Kane. They have Gary Oldman droop his unconscious hands off a bed and drop a glass thing on the floor ostentatiously to show you how much it's about Citizen Kane. And so, like, they know and I know and they know that I know and I know that they know that I know that they know that they're going to have to do some reference to Bernard Herrmann. In that context, like, I can't help but say, well, all right, this is not as good as Bernard Herrmann music, right? It just doesn't feel motivated with the same kind of conviction that Herman summons for his writing. They're doing the Herman thing where there's like a repeating rhythmic figure. In this case, it's like a very simple kind of tick-tock kind of plink-plunk mm-hmm. figure. And then they're doing the Herman thing where there's a very small cellular musical thought that gets repeated obsessively, like just like a two-note phrase. These are all out of the Herman playbook, but doesn't stick to it in the right way. I saw Reznor say in an interview that he went back and looked at Bernard Herman music and 
he said when he wrote the opening cue, he thought, am I doing too much for just a car driving down the street? But then he thought, well, Bernard Herrmann went huge with everything. He exaggerated everything. If it was just a shot of someone walking, he would do a big, bold statement. So you need to do everything big and exaggerated. And I think that that's a shallow reading of what's going on with Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, it is. Maybe you should have listened to some of our Bernard Herrmann episodes. Yeah, I feel like, as we always say when we talk about him, it's always rooted in a dramatic insight into some dramatic thesis. If you do it just as a style reference, then you will make a movie like this that has a very strong set of style references, but is confusing to watch. Yeah, and I found it confusing to listen to. Yeah, but when I went back and listened to the soundtrack, I thought, oh, man, this would have won me over if it had been I agree. put to the right use. I There's agree. this one track on there. I think they use it for the, like, the writer's room at MGM. Super cool. There's a typewriter in there. With the typewriter in there. And this sounds like, I mean, you know, I went through a period where I was really into Raymond Scott, who was... I was going to ask you about Raymond Scott. Novelty jazz in the 30s and this one track... This little tune with the saxophone. I thought, oh my God, someone wrote some new music like this for a movie. How fantastic that is. And this sounds so great. And yet in the movie, I mean, all of the jazz that you hear when he's walking around the studios, it just seemed wrong to me. It seemed like that's not what the studios feel like to anyone. Who feels that way in this movie? Louis B. Mayer doesn't feel that way. Herman Mankiewicz doesn't feel that way. The audiences don't feel that way. No one feels that way. It's just music. And again, what I kept coming back to is that movies from the 40s don't feel this way. Right. Citizen Kane doesn't feel this way. And we keep saying 40s. I mean, Citizen Kane is 1940. The movie all takes place before that. Most of it is in flashbacks from 1934. So it's too early by many reckonings. Every time the Gene Krupa drums came in, which was frequently, it's like, that is the go-to reference for people who don't actually care that much about this era. Like, oh yeah, you know Right, and surely Sing 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 was playing in the background Yes, exactly It's like, if you don't know anything about the 40s But you're going to have like 40s dance at your high school you Let's put Sing 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 on Okay, we did it And like, this movie should know better Certainly the costume designer and the hair and makeup people knew better Right So uh, why, I don't know did you hear a reference to a Nino Rota melody in there? Don't yes, Amarcord. Don't they over quote Amarcord? Yeah. I think it must have been the Marion Davies theme. Was that possibly how it was used? I heard it most notably when he runs into her car, has a conversation with her there. And that's one of the cues that you were talking about where it gets kind of goofed up with weird sounds. But yeah, it's based on this Amicord melody. I mean, I don't know if it's based on it, but I think the idea of that... <laughs> evocative of it. Yeah, the sinking chromatic line over a popular song is a Rota reference because that's Hollywood. It's a different decade of Hollywood. It's a different part of Hollywood. It's a but different nationality of Hollywood. The magic of the movies. I mean, just back to the movie. The point of the movie, as far as I could tell, was that he revenged himself on Hearst because he was angry that they used the power of cinema to 
prevent Upton Sinclair from becoming the governor of California, which, uh, as far as I've read about Herman Mankiewicz, isn't true. It's just a made-up uh, motivation. <laughs> that, like, those weren't his politics, and that's not something he would have cared about. Even that is delivered kind of circuitously and not with a lot of punch. And other than that, what was the movie saying about anything? But did you appreciate that Upton Sinclair was Bill Nye? What? The science guy? Yeah, indeed. The science guy. That really amused me as some stunt casting. (laughs) Speaking of stunt casting, I imagine that they cast Charles Dance in the role of William Randolph Hearst in this movie because he has that one speech towards the end of the movie where he gets to say the word dance a couple times. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why Mankiewicz kept saying, I'm such an old man, right? Yeah, sure. (laughs) I mean, I was a little dismayed to learn how much of an old man he actually wasn't. Yeah, Herman Mankiewicz was like, 33 in this movie. It's like half Oldman's age, but whatever. You mean the age of the actress they cast to play his wife, who was his contemporary in real life. Yes, that's right. I mean, I just wanted to say, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what does this movie mean? It's a mystery, and that's why so is mankind. (laughs) Also, I wrote a series of things here, you know, laughing all the way to the mank. We didn't have occasion to say that. Mm -hmm. Gonna mank him an offery camera. (laughs) Well, I did do that in the movie. I'm surprised at you, John. I thought you were going to go first. I was like, once John starts with this, I can use these. (laughs) What can I say? You're making me embarrassed. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for getting there ahead of me. I say let's move on. I think we should move on. Okay. Next up alphabetically is another movie that begins with M. It's Minari. Minari was produced by Dee Dee Gardner, Jeremy Kleiner, and Christina O, oh, and it was written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung. It stars Stephen Yun, Yeri Han, Alan Kim, Noel Kate Cho, and Yoo Jung Yun as a family of Korean immigrants who moved to rural Arkansas to try to make a new life as farmers. Music by Emil Moseri. How did you feel about Minari, John? I thought Minari was really good. Did you? Yes, so did I. When you said there was one really good movie, was this the one? This is the one. I agree. Okay, good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I was very moved by this. I thought it was a beautiful movie. And I also thought, I don't know how idiosyncratic and personal my response is. I mean, it had to do with people in my life, things I was thinking about. Yeah. Some of them were direct resemblances and some of them were just sort of evoked. My life doesn't resemble this life. And yet, I think the beauty of the movie is that it's so personal and specific that it has a universal impact. Very nicely said. Yes, it was so personal and down to earth that anybody can relate to it. It's an amazing thing about art in a very pure form that if you communicate something truly, honestly, without overly trying to package it and pretend to be on the same page as your audience, Uh you just say, this is my experience. Yeah. That stimulates some kind of deep response that art is all about and it's very valuable yeah this movie has no pretension to it it's just matter of fact and graceful and restrained and it's for those reasons meditative and just so easy to get caught up in and and i think the music is completely instrumental in creating that don't you yeah i think it's all real instruments i don't think he's using 
That's not what I mean, John, and you know that's not what I mean. Although, actually, there's a prominent use of voices in this, so it's not completely instrumental. Hey, remember a few episodes ago I said, is this the first time we're hearing the composer sing? You know whose voice that is? Is it the composer? It is Emil Mosseri's voice. Yeah, the music in this movie is used very thoughtfully, as opposed, I think, to the two movies that we've talked about so far. I mean, listen, I'll be honest. I think I would rather put on the soundtrack album from Mank or from The Five Bloods, you know, just to listen to. I think the music from those movies is excellent. But in terms of what the music is doing in the movie and how it's helping the movie pack its punch and get under my skin and into my heart, this is decidedly more thoughtful and successful. It immediately did something to me. Yeah. The music starts, it goes from one to four. Simplest stuff you can imagine. And I immediately thought, oh, it opened me up. I get this. I'm feeling something. Yeah. This movie has something to say. Yeah, it lives in this simplicity. And I wrote down in my notes a few times, the big simple. <laughs> just leaning on simplicity and in fact the simplicity winds up being deceptive you know there's actually i think some real canniness to some of the chords he chooses and some of the textures he builds Mm -hmm. but it's never far away from a feeling of simplicity it's daring it's really a bold and confident thing to do is to stick so concertedly to simplicity and not go too far afield. Yeah, I thought that the language and the production style, everything about the sound that this produces right away communicates everything you need to know. It frames it exactly right. You know, this movie is a memoir, essentially. It's a lightly fictionalized version of the filmmaker's childhood. Right. But it never says that. It never says, I'm the boy in the movie. It never says, I feel nostalgia about this. You get a sense of everything from this music that starts right away. What we're watching during the opening titles is the family driving to their new home, which is a trailer in the middle of a field. The kid is sitting in the backseat of the car, and the music immediately put me in touch with the fully spiritualized, aestheticized, emotionalized experience of just sitting passively in a car being driven somewhere that you have as a kid. And also the reflection from the present day looking back at this. Mm -hmm. It's both those things at once because it is this simple but emotional and I think key, you know, indie pop rock sounding kind of music. You kind of feel that this music is an album from now about either feelings that are universal because we're having them now or feelings from now looking back at then. It's not about the culture. It's not about the place. Yeah, it's not about sounding Korean. Yeah, certainly not. Or about sounding American. It's not Arkansas. It's not Korea. It's not reflexively going, oh, I know what goes with this. 
<laughs> the way that the music in Mank said, oh, 30s? I know what goes with this. They're listening to swing. Yeah. This instead marks out its own territory. It doesn't say you need to remember this stuff to think about the right things as you watch this movie. The music says, I'm going to lay out this new unspoiled territory that we can all meet in and think about the nature of family. and Or not think about it, feel it. Yeah, feel it. There you are. Yeah, it is not scoring anything but a canvas for feeling. certainly not scoring the action you know like things happen to the people in this family for good and for bad and and there are some life events that happen and they range from quite mundane to quite impactful and the music really stays out of the way of them you know there's not music for the big event that happens in the movie the music wouldn't dare to play while these actors are giving these terrific performances about the difficulties of a marriage standing up to immigrating to a new place and setting out to lead a new life the music wouldn't dare to get in there and you don't miss it you don't want it there did you feel what the rule of the music seems to be? I had a very palpable sense of what the rule guiding the use of the music was. I, I didn't phrase anything as a rule. What's your proposed rule? It's probably not a rule, and it probably wound up emerging from the first principles of the score, you know, which are to lay out the space for personal feeling and contemplation. Nonetheless, I felt palpably that we could only hear music if it was connected to outside. Hmm. The vast majority of the music occurs when the camera is out of doors. Now, there are many instances of prelapse, as it were, where, you know, the music that accompanies an outdoor scene starts playing before we cut to outside. But I actually think it is true that there is no music cue in this score that we hear playing without there being any shots of the outdoors during its time. It seemed very felt that whatever these people's dramas and joys and sorrows are, the overarching sense of the space where they are and the land that they're living on and working, that's where we have the space to feel these things. And the music wasn't going to dare to step inside <laughs> with them. The music needed the space of the outside. It really felt like a powerful, like a gravitational pull. Like the music is taking me outside. I hear music, that means I'm about to go outside. The music is about the outside <laughs> and what the outside means to them. The way this score was written, I think the score was pretty much all written before production and the director had it in hand and let it inform the movie making and I think that that has led to a really beautiful effect here where the movie really does understand its own tone because it has heard its own music uh -huh. yeah 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 so I think that he has edited it in a way where you know the music defines the outside the transition from inside to outside or from one scene to another that the music initiates that you just mentioned I thought some of those were very beautiful I was moved a bunch of times, like there's a close-up when he's received a deck of cards from his grandmother and he looks at it. Yeah. The music comes in on the close-up of the cards and then that music takes us into the blooming of the farm and it's a passage of time. I thought that communicates so much sort of ineffable stuff about the relationship between the 
grand scale, the scale of nature, the scale of the seasons, and the small scale that a child's interest might focus, you know, this deck of cards that maybe represents the tradition or his relationship with his grandmother, or just, you know, in my own life, like a little object that you have represents everything about your life somehow, <laughs> it encapsulates it. And for this music to very easily and gracefully cross that edit and make a spiritual meaning, somehow linking the little deck of cards with the passage of time and the meaning of all their lives was a beautiful effect. Yeah, and the cycles of nature. And yeah. And I saw that Chung mentioned that an influence was Terrence Malick, and I saw that a lot. I felt like Days of Heaven is surely an influence on this. And I think I've tossed out Terrence Malick a few times in conversations as a point of reference as someone who uses music to create philosophical breadth by putting different things under the same musical umbrella and saying, you know, let your subconscious find the center of gravity that relates these things. The composer and the director have pulled that off in this movie in a way that spoke to me, you know, that worked in my brain. It's a little like a magic trick where I didn't have to do thinking. I just had to let the experience happen in sequence and indeed my thoughts and feelings lined up because the rhythm of the music had laid the track for them and that's such a beautiful experience when it happens. Yeah, it is a magic trick to tell you that it just is, and therefore you can go to where it just is and reach your feelings deeply in any direction. Another train of thought I had watching this movie about this style of scoring as sort of contrasted with other movies in this episode, other movies we talk about, one of the appeals, the marvels of old traditional movie scoring is that it kind of suggests to you what it would be like for your emotions to be perfectly articulated and boldly delineated and propped up by a whole orchestra. There's something very reassuring and satisfying about the idea that you could have a perfectly visible and coherent emotional life. Even if you had a struggle, it would be a struggle writ on a page in front of you in these romantic colors. And that is really out of fashion these days. That is not how people <laughs> want to think about their subconscious. Or I think our willingness to believe in that has diminished culturally. What we do believe in now is kind of an inarticulate presence. This music that's kind of saying, I wouldn't dream of pretending to talk to you. You know, I'm not a thing that <laughs> talks. I'm a feeling that you're having and I'm keeping you open to it and aware of it. I'm not going to cross the line into the world of the conscious. I cannot deny it has a very strong effect. I felt like this music scene for scene was saying to me like, and stay open and stay open to this. And it worked every time mm. it came in. Yeah. And it did seem true. Like these characters they aren't analyzing the emotional meanings of their lives. They're just living them. You know, they'll have an argument and they'll say, I'm not happy or whatever. But the deeper feeling that the movie is really about, which is not their ups and downs, it's about sort of the meaning of life, yeah. never gets words put to it. It's just this soft, song-like presence throughout. And um, yeah, it's just interesting to me that it's almost a completely different school of what to do with music in a movie because it's so psychologically different, but it's very powerful when it works. Yeah, and it's really working here. Yeah. It's using methods that are deceptively simple. He gets so much mileage out of this composite texture that he's come up with where there's a piano playing the melody and there's also a human voice, apparently his own human voice, singing the same melody along with the piano. winds up being a very evocative elevation of the simplicity of a piano. 
I mean, the human voice is simple too, but it's not quite being used as a voice. It really feels to me like it's a color, it's a shadow on the piano melody. It's the umbra being cast by the melody the piano is playing, and, and it opens out. It's just very economically expressive. And yeah, like I said before, the changes are as simple as possible. You said there are fancier ones, and there are in some places, but this song that is then sung at the end by the actress in the movie with lyrics that were written by the composer and then translated into Korean, and I didn't see what they're about. Something about rain. Most of the feeling in this song comes from going from one to four and then back to one. Yeah, and there's something about the rhythm of these changes. The metabolism of these harmonies is slow. It just felt like a big balloon floating by that is just moving at its own pace and is gently bouncing. Have we had occasion on this show to do a shout out to Eric Satie before? I don't remember if we have. Possibly. It seems like such an important element in the last hundred years of music, especially oddly popular music, but it finds its way into other kinds of music too. The famous piece by Satie, and he wrote many pieces in this style. And there in fact is a cue in this movie that sounds to me like a different Satie piece, this one. Here's the cue. But this idea of music moving with such a stillness, flowing Mm -hmm. so slowly and stately, such an absence of agitation that it communicates a kind of calm, beyond normal calm. It's mm-hmm. like there's normal events and then this is the frame in which normal events take place moving at a much slower pace. Right, frame. Yeah, the music is really giving you a sense of framing for sure here. You know, just going from one to four, if you're willing to find the depth of feeling in it, you can devote a whole life to that feeling. You know, usually it's just used as kind of one step on a staircase, but when you take the meditative devotional approach to a change like that, that is the feeling of childhood and, I think importantly, the feeling of memoir, that this matters not because of what it fits into, but because you lived it, because it is. Mm -hmm. It's the act of living it and feeling everything that it means that matters, rather than building something out of it, and it matches the intention of this movie so perfectly. Yeah. Speaking of the intention of this movie, I think it's important to say that, you know, music that has this attitude and has this stillness that we're saying and this economy wouldn't work for any movie. I think you need a movie that has a lot of assurance behind it in its photography and its acting performances and pacing. It really feels very symbiotic in this case that both the composer and the filmmaker whose story this is had their heartbeats in sync about what kind of experience they thought it should be for the audience. Yeah, and again, he made the movie to the music and the music was written to the script. I mean, this movie is really astonishing. I'm still sort of digesting. I only watched it a couple days ago. It stays with you. All of the things it pulls off that other movies, you know, lots of people have tried to make a movie about their memoir 
about their family. And it's so common that such a thing will fall flat. You won't get the human universal message. And that is all comes from craft and just a real clarity of intention and real spiritual clarity. The movie is not cluttered up with anything that shouldn't be there. It's really impressive. Agreed. Clarity of intention. By far the most moving of these scores, I am willing to say. I agree. Okay, you wanted to use clarity of intention as a <laughs> segue? Yeah, yeah. I thought I would uh, say, hey, speaking of clarity of intention, okay. what did you think of News of the World? News of the World was written by Paul Greengrass and Luke Davies, based on the novel of the same name by Paulette Giles. It was produced by Gary Getzman, Gail Mutruxen, Gregory Goodman, and it was directed by Paul Greengrass. It stars Tom Hanks as Captain Jefferson Kidd, an ex-soldier in 1870 Texas who makes a living going from town to town reading aloud from newspapers. He comes across Johanna, a lost orphan girl, played by Helena Zengel, whom he needs to return to her family. Music by James Newton Howard. Well, you asked me what I thought of this. I found this bewildering number three. <laughs> um, I think I liked it a little better than that. I definitely didn't. Okay. If I know what I thought of it, it was that I didn't like it very much but I'm not sure I know. Tell me why you were bewildered. Um, I guess my question would be, what is the point? Why does this movie exist? <laughs> You're saying that for you, it did not have clarity of intention. Uh, the reason I fulcrumed on that to this movie is because I think that the score actually has quite a clarity of intention. But uh, yeah, I want to hear what you weren't with here. Remember how Minari, I said the very first chord change, I immediately thought, I get it, I'm feeling it, I'm with you. Uh -huh. And in this one, the very first chord change, I thought, oh, is this what we're doing? What is that? What is that supposed to be? Uh, are you telling me? I, I don't know what you're getting at. And that just stuck around the whole time. It didn't feel real, and it didn't feel like a productive or valuable kind of fake and it didn't feel cohesive, and it didn't feel engaging. And this guy that they cast as the guy, like- You mean Tom Hanks? Yeah, where did they find this actor? He's totally the wrong type for this. <laughs> Is he like married to someone? I don't understand how this movie got made with this dude. I don't know how to- <laughs> I mean, I found Tom Hanks to be a wonderful on-screen presence, as always. Are you saying you did not? I mean, he certainly resembled international treasure Tom Hanks, who, uh, <laughs> you know, that's great. But um, there seemed to be some kind of Western going on, and this guy, like, read the news of the world from town to town, and then he finds uh, a lost girl yeah, who that's, doesn't that's what happens. speak the language. Yeah, and meningitis right. epidemic continues to spread without prejudice across the panhandle yeah that part what did that have to do with actor so tom far, hanks it has claimed i just felt like there was no there there that i knew how to find and just the music had a proposal and i didn't believe it in federal news our own dallas Harrow. uh so that's my response <laughs> to this movie that's fine i didn't feel strongly about this movie so or about the score i gotta say i felt like the score had a clear idea of what it wanted to do and what it didn't want to do and i respected that about it but uh it's not my favorite so i'm i'm game to hear you uh whine about it that's it i don't have like a bunch of funny angry things to say i just felt like its idea of the west and the music's idea of the west 
both in their ways reminded me of video games. It felt like uh. it was just kind of, have we done the trope? Have we gotten to that Western thing? Does it look Western-y enough in the lighting for people to buy this game? I just felt like it was trying to sell me that I was getting that thing. And I felt this open question the whole time of like, what are you trying to tell me? And I, I don't know what the answer is, but I'd be interested to hear answers to that. So I read that James Newton Howard, the composer, indeed wanted to not be too on the nose Western. And the adjective that governed a lot of his thinking as he was putting together the soundscape was broken. This was a story of a broken country. It takes place, you know, just a few years after the Civil War, and it's a broken landscape and a broken man. And he wanted to, in a sense, have a broken orchestra. He assembled a small contingent of archaic instruments, historical predecessors to the modern-day string instruments like a viola da gamba and other authentic period strings that were of a different time. And so he put together, I think there was like seven or eight of those kinds of instruments together, and those made up what he called the broken consort. I kind of respect the thinking there. I respect the process. Yeah, and the thing that I most respected about this score was the restraint. I felt like it showed a lot of confidence in just being willing to play this pad that is made up of some slightly unfamiliar sounds and paint broad strokes with it. I didn't find it scintillating the whole time I heard it, and hear it a lot, and I did kind of wish for there to be a little bit more motion and interest and for the music to be making more statements than just this kind of textural wash that he came up with. And the score does have a few such moments up its sleeve where it's going to really break out and be active and energetic, which I was very welcome for, and they kind of made me feel like, all right, well, this toned-down, low-key textural wash he's come up with is very intentional and is very uh, considered, and I was willing to grant it a sense of confidence for that reason. I saw him in an interview say something about not wanting to step on the performance mm -hmm. and trying to really stay restrained so that he didn't pull spotlight from what Tom Hanks was doing that was so wonderful. And it may be that my entire issue with this movie is that I just don't think I can believe that Tom Hanks is acting as anything other than Tom Hanks anymore. I don't know if that's because I'm overexposed to him or because of his actual performance techniques, but I couldn't stop seeing Tom Hanks being Tom Hanks. We hope you like that. We're all journeying across the prairie, straight line, I'm looking for that place to be. And the idea that the score was trying to let that be center stage rather than do what I think I felt it needed to do, which was make a statement, not about generic placement and the wash and the sort of painting the walls with the right color, but to actually draw some lines to give form to this guy's journey. 
Maybe it's just my yeah, eyes know. didn't see that there was form to his journey in Tom Hanks's demeanor, his posture, his eyes. I, I don't know what. I just felt like I was watching Tom Hanks being shuttled around from scene to scene. And the music giving undue deference to that, like, oh, now just hush, hush, let's watch. Like, watch what? What am I watching? Do you remember anything else? What else can you remember? One place where the music gives a lot of deference to the on-screen action is this extended gunfight sequence. That's like the highlight of the movie because there's action and you can watch the action as such. Right, yeah, I thought it was some pretty good Western gunfight action. It formed a stark contrast to my ears to what Blanchard did for the gunfight. I mean, it's a different scale of a gunfight in the Vietnam flashback that he scores, but you know, it's still some gunfighty things happening where people are ducking behind rocks and trying to sneak up on a position and what have you. And in this movie, instead of very bold statements about the idea of military endeavors, this gunfight, the music really wants you to pay attention to the open, empty space. There's a lot of tremolo and long-held textures. There's not a lot of motion musically. Well, there's these sort of shivering, you know, whispery, jittery yeah. violin stuff. There's actually a lot of subtle orchestration that goes on throughout this score in the textures if you listen close to them. The craft on show here is very high. Yeah, that's all. I thought this was an interesting and evocative, you know, different way to make a space, to emphasize emptiness by just letting you hear kind of textures in a vacuum. I mean, Newton Howard, I think, is a really skilled composer, and we haven't talked about him before, except for that one movie from 1995 that you saw and I didn't. Right, right, Restoration. But yeah, James Newton Howard has been around for a long time now. He's extremely versatile. He composes basically every kind of movie for all different kinds of directors and very prolific. And accomplished. And accomplished, yeah. His skill is undeniable. Yes. I did have a thought, which isn't even really specifically about James Newton Howard, but as I was sitting there feeling untransported by all of these sounds that I had to acknowledge were in the ear quite well textured, I thought, oh, computer demos and computer composing have led us to an era where a lot of sophistication of orchestration and production, it's hard for me to appreciate it now because interesting sounds and interesting <laughs> instrumental techniques have become so common these days. Scrapes and taps and things that, you know, when we were talking about Jerry Goldsmith scores from in the 70s, it's a very exciting thing, and it actually plays as exciting in those movies. Yet somehow now it's just like, oh, someone has produced a very fancy and professional-sounding sound that has all kinds of stuff going on. Oh, listen to that. And I think it arises at least in part from the fact that if you make your demo on a computer with samples and you just have a list of samples and one of them is scrape piano wire or you know, drop uh, ping pong balls into instrument and then some assistant orchestrates it to make real people play it, the sort of hierarchy of normal versus special has gone away and so there are all kinds of things that if I focused my attention on them are special here. He makes some very cool sounds, but my attention doesn't naturally focus on them because I don't have a sense of standard practice filling out most of the space to make those things pop. 
And I think that thought kind of can extend to all the music. Like, yeah, there's a lot of skill here, but it doesn't fit into a hierarchy Mm. that gives meaning to me. I just kind of feel like... I don't mean video game to be a complete pejorative, but I feel like uh, in video games, you're sort of being asked to meet them halfway. Like, look what we did. We made a game that's like a Western. And you're like, oh, yeah, it sounds so Western. And that's not direct communication. It's kind of... Let's collaborate on meeting the trope. And when they get to the town in this movie, when they get to Dallas or wherever they are, and you hear some like, yeah, digging in, here's the groove, here's the West. Oh, we got a guitar and a banjo, and the band is really going now. That's one of the spots I was talking about, one of the treats that you have to wait for. It's definitely a treat, but it feels like a treat that's not this movie's storytelling treat. That's fair. Nor is it something you've never had the luxury of experiencing before. Nor is it like in the 50s, every movie sounded kind of the same in some ways because they're taking you to movie land. It's big. Here comes the orchestra. And that's reassuring. That's not how things feel these days either because there's no standard practice in that sense either. It's kind of like, get what we're doing? And we say, yeah, I get what you're doing. One of those. Glad to be served one of those it's not rewarding for me and i'm sad that it's not rewarding for me. <laughs> all right well i mean i kind of feel like i'm in a funny situation here because i didn't have a strong reaction to this movie i didn't have a strong reaction to the score i liked it i felt like i liked it as i was watching it but i didn't feel strongly enough about it that i had a lot to say and i wanted to say words like restrained and yeah uh you know skillful <laughs> and confident and uh Texture is a good word. Uh, I was kind of willing to let your take uh, guide me here. and uh, Nope. <laughs> your take being, I don't know why I had to watch this no-name actor on the screen. Well, that's a joke take. But my take was I was alienated from it. And then I just had a bunch of thought processes about, like, how have things gotten so alienating? Why wouldn't this let me in? And those aren't really takes on the movie. So, yeah, it's not much of a take. All right. Well, I guess my take is that I don't feel strongly enough to contradict your lack of a take so uh fair enough sorry news of the world uh that's the news of the world yeah (laughs) we did it oh wait you know what i had a thought here yeah one of the questions i asked myself there's him music you know when he wants to play music of real feeling towards the end of the movie when people's backstories open up and we get to see what they've been holding in their heart all along there's him tune kind of piano soulfulness Again, on the soundtrack, this is quite nice. But the piano isn't a period piece. Sure. And I don't know if the piano represents Tom Hanks' character's heart. It doesn't really seem like it's expressing his voice. But James Newton Howard hasn't asserted that he is a voice in this movie. So why is there a piano? What are the feelings and who's doing the feeling? And thinking about this while still working through a previous episode about the Terminator, you asked as a joke in that, you know, who's reading this readout that we see in the Terminator vision? And it's actually not a joke, I think, with movies sometimes. Like, is this music for the audience to read, for the characters to read? It felt like it didn't have a satisfactory answer. All right, I'll buy that. Okay. Evidently, I buy that because I don't feel motivated to... Yeah, to counter it. Okay, down through the alphabet to the last one, right? Yeah, the last one. We're almost on home stretch here. This is the second movie on our list that has a one-word, four-letter title. Mm-hmm. It's also the second movie on our list that has a score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. That's right. But this one also has music by John Baptiste, and we'll talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about it right now. Let's talk about that right now. Soul. 
Soul was written by Pete Doctor, Mike Jones, and Kemp Powers. It was produced by Dana Murray and directed by Pete Doctor and Kemp Powers. It stars Jamie Foxx as the voice of Joe Gardner, a substitute music teacher in New York City who dreams of being a jazz pianist, but who suddenly dies just as he's about to realize his dreams, and then his soul in the great beyond has to figure out the meaning of life. And also stars Tina Fey as another soul that he meets in the great beyond, and a bunch of other people. It's a Pixar movie. Music by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and John Batiste. What do you think of Soul, John? I was a little bewildered. You were? Okay. Well, this one's not a bewildered for me, so bring it. I like other people's bewilderment. <laughs> Let me try and help you through it. I like this. I mean, I didn't like it unreservedly, 100%, but I liked it a fair amount. I, I liked it a fair amount, too. I think, you know, Pixar always knows a lot about what they're doing, and I'm happy to be in Pixar land. I liked a lot about it, no doubt. It put me in a good mood. Sure. It made me feel that I was in happy, feelingful company. And I have to say, personal though it may be, but you can share this with me. The way it made New York look was so beautiful. I felt nostalgia oh, for New York. Absolutely. The way it looked was really, really remarkably gorgeous. They would show scenes on the street. I'd be like, I know where that is. Yeah. Well, I know where the real world version of that is, which is not quite as beautifully realistic looking as this CGI dream. No, there's always a lot to enjoy and relish in a Pixar dreamscape. And this is no exception. And I really appreciated a lot about it. <laughs> Here was my experience of this movie. I had dimly heard that it had something to do with, you know, an afterlife or a between metaphysical plane of spiritual existence and also jazz, but I forgot about the afterlife part. <laughs> so I started watching this movie and I was so excited that I was going to get to see a Pixar movie about the new pianist in the Dorothea Williams Quartet. Teach. What, what do we play? Him learning the ropes and playing his piano. And I got to see the wonderfully animated hands, you know, which are based on John Baptiste's own hands playing the piano. And I was so excited to get to hear this jazz music and see it treated seriously and beautifully animated. And before you get to the butt, it's because you really get that in the first 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah. The sequences of music that this movie starts out with are as good as playing music on screen has ever been done, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was really excited by that. And I was so happy I was going to get to watch the movie about that. And then all of a sudden, he uh, dies. And, <laughs> and then we see his little, little cartoon. He turns into a, like a, a little cartoon soul blobby fuzzy. Yeah, like a gummy bear version of him. He doesn't want to be there. He's like, no, take me back. And I'm also like, no, put me back in the other movie. What? Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm not done. i got to get back. So that first movie you were talking about was scored by John Batiste, but suddenly, yeah. suddenly you're in a movie scored by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Pixar had the idea that because this movie takes place across two different realms of existence, there's the real world in which there are jazz musicians, and then there's the world of the soul, which is not exactly an afterlife, whatever, but so there are two different things, and they had this idea, they had this top-down idea about how to divvy up the musical chores in the movie that we've come across a couple of times in previous episodes, where they were going to farm it out to two different composing forces. One was going to do the jazz world, and then the other 
was going to do the soul world. Mm -hmm. Every time we've talked about that before, it's been a hypothetical plan that didn't come to pass. Now we're seeing it in action for the first time. And I think it was a mistake. I think that that is a tempting thing to a producer that feels like you're really doing your job and ticking off your grocery checklist of things that the movie needs. But I think that it is a pitfall and a trap that is difficult to navigate. And I wasn't totally on board with how it was navigated in this I think that you might be able to talk me into genuine dissatisfaction with it because I felt my feelings also going over a bump every time we made the transition, which, yeah. you know, there's transitions back and forth four or five times over the course of the movie. And I knew that they wanted me to feel that bump and that that was the point of the movie, and I did think... How much value is that bump really giving to this movie? And is this movie really correctly conceived? And that's my reservation, I guess, about the movie. But ultimately, <laughs> I let it work out. And looking back at it without too much focus, I thought, well, maybe that all worked. Maybe that was all the right thing to do. But tell me why it wasn't. I mean, let me pull across that I liked a lot about this movie. And there's a lot to enjoy about this movie. I don't want to be a total grump about this. But I mean, just straight off the bat, you know, what movie is this movie? It seemed like it was a bunch of movies that I had seen before. When I got yanked out of the movie that I thought I was going to get to see about these jazz musicians, that agreed. It was wonderful. And I could have been in that movie all day long. All of a sudden, no, wait a minute. This is, uh, this is Inside Out, isn't it? I've already seen this Pixar movie about, you know, blobby, fuzzy... Yeah, gummy bears. Blobby, fuzzy gummy bears who are characterizations of the way humanity works and the way people work and the way the world works. And mm -hmm. this already feels like I have read this playbook already. And then the movie, you know, it spends a while being Inside Out. And then it's also The Good Place. And it's Heaven Can Wait for a while there. For a while, this is... Uh, you know that Steve Martin movie, All of Me, where he gets half-possessed by Lily Tomlin? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a jazz musician who's there's like a body switch soul mix-up thing. Then for a while, this movie is American Beauty because it wants you to really dig the heart-wrenching beauty of uh, leaves flying in the air. Mm -hmm. And you get to hear some dreamy piano music about that. We'll talk about that. And then, you know, then it's defending your life, too. And then if you hang around to the very end of the credits, somebody comes out and tells you that the movie is over and go home, just like Ferris Bueller. So... I felt like this was a little bit of a gallimaufry of ideas that I had seen before. And similarly, this score was kind of a too many cooks problem to me. I don't know why we needed Reznor and Ross on this score. I would have been so happy to hear John Batiste's music the whole time. I was so happy whenever I was hearing John Batiste's music, whenever I got to watch him play his own music on the piano through these animated hands of the character. But not just that, the actual scoring that he does for running around, you know, the quote-unquote real world of New York City was so welcome, so playful and captivating. was always a bit of a disappointment that the movie kept saying to me, yeah, 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 but we got somebody else to cover the magic parts. Don't worry. I so wanted to hear what John Baptiste would have done to score the soul world instead. Yeah, I think I agree with everything, just not the degree of disappointment in it. 
I think my pleasure in the movie is about the movie about the substitute teacher who wants to be a jazz musician. The movie about, you know, Casper the Friendly Ghosts walking around in an empty space was sort of a mechanism to drive the action, and I accepted that we were going to see a certain amount of that kind of stuff to set it up. But I did think that that section of the movie, which is half the movie, it might even be more than half the movie, felt, as you say, familiar from inside out. Like, of course Pixar's going to do this. And also, yes, less significant an experience to me. And I do chalk that up to the music in some ways. I was reminded of talking about how Randy Newman kind of created the Pixar experience by combining these CGI surfaces with a really personable human. Yeah. uh, Humanizes the potential sterility of CGI for Randy Newman to be there. And it seemed like Reznor and Ross had tried to match CGI. Like, what does CGI sound like? Let's make some CGI-y kind of music. That's right. They did a lot of, you know, synth noise, kind of boop-a-doop stuff. You know, they, they did boop-a-doops and they did ambient beds. And the ambient beds, I felt like, oh, I see the world of the soul sounds like your PlayStation home screen. And the boop-a-doops and the dig you know... I liked them better when Thomas Newman did them for Wally. I think that was much more thoughtfully realized in that score. Yeah, I mean, PlayStation Home Screen is actually a good reference because I feel like the point of the PlayStation Home Screen is you're about to enter the magical world of computers. It's different <laughs> from your real world. Right. It's an escape. It's cold, but it's safe. And yeah. Anything is possible here. Isn't that strange but wonderful? That's absolutely a thing, and that has value, but to do it here to represent kind of the place where the meaning of life is determined, and then spend most of the movie there, and contrast it with, yeah, like the warmest, most human, unpredictable, earthy music they could find, Jean-Baptiste. By contrast, this stuff truly did feel sterile to me, and I felt like I was kind of waiting for the plot mechanics to be worked through so they could get back to Earth. Yeah. But uh, I wasn't annoyed by it. Uh, I tell you, a plot mechanic I was annoyed by was this kind of bait and switch they do about, they make you think, oh, every proto-soul has to find a spark, which is your personal thing that each person has to be about. And then... I mean, the whole movie actually hinges on what specifically they do or don't say about the spark, and I don't remember exactly what they do say, but it was something like it's the thing that lights you up when you see it, right? I don't think they actually landed on anything about it. I kind of feel like the notion that everybody has one special purpose that they are meant to do is kind of harmful. And I was relieved that the movie backpedaled from it and said, oh, no, 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 that's not what we're about. Really, it's it's what? I didn't understand what filled in the blank after they anyway, took that away. I never got my spark. Yes, you did. My reading of it was that it wasn't a backpedal. It was a clarification of a common anxious misperception of how to find meaning in life. isn't your purpose, to a more heartening general one by the end. I I felt a little confused about what I was supposed to think was really literally happening and what was maybe a dream in this injured guy's head in the hospital. And I felt like it was kind of bouncing around and having it both ways. And I think that part of that disjointedness was because the fact that these are disparate spheres that you have to, you know, get your money changed when you go from one to the other is constantly being reinforced by them having totally different musical worlds by different composers. Yeah, and, you know, the implication there is that his 
Jean-Baptiste scored life on Earth has a kind of unseen deeper truth, right. which is this impersonal CGI music that behind the joy you might experience on Earth and behind the real world of New York is this like beep boop, beep boop, the, you know, the wiring in the wall. I think the musical effect is to subtly devalue the thing that the movie is actually trying to hold up yes. as the greatest thing in the world. Yes. To say that, you know what makes it run? Totally impersonal machinery. Yeah, this is the problem with assigning different parts of your movie to different viewpoints, to different thought processes. Especially a movie that purports to be about connecting this guy's life energy with his life's pursuits. It wants to be a movie that can be talking about the meaning of life all the time, not just uh, some of the time. This is the kind of a trap that you fall into when you sort these things into these separate cubbyholes. Like, there's this obviously key moment towards the end of the movie where he's having a heart-to-heart discussion with his mother, who hasn't understood him in his musical pursuits through his because life. it seems like no matter what I do, you disapprove. Look, I know you love playing. And so what music should get to score this? Is this scene about the jazz music that is so important to him that he's trying to get his mother to understand? Yes, it is. Is this scene about the life essence, spark, meaning that the whole gummy bear world is trying to suss out? Yes, it is. So what music gets to score this pivotal scene? This isn't about my career, Mom. It's, it's my reason for living. Neither. You know, you'd have to make a decision. Ooh, who gets this assignment? It's a shackle to say only some of this movie gets to have only some of the expression that we are building up with which to tell the story. I thought the pivotal moment where I think they made the wrong choice is when he sits at the piano and puts a bunch of meaningless yet meaningful objects in front of him and kind of meditates on what it is for life to have purpose Uh and all the experiences he's had. The heart of the movie, the main scene in the movie. Yeah. And he is playing at the piano music to express his life. To have a scene like that, you're setting yourself up. It's an impossible thing to do. You can't write a piece of music that represents all of life to an entire person. You know, it's the classic Mr. Holland's opus problem where, like, you can't put the actual transcendently significant piece of art in the art. You can't actually see it. They, instead of asking Batiste to play something at the piano, have a Ross and Reznor thing that starts with the piano there, I believe. That seemed to me like a necessary cop-out, but in being necessary, it felt a little like, yeah, this movie could have been made of even stronger stuff if it had if it had committed more to John Batiste. And we should talk more about what John Batiste has contributed to this movie. Okay, that was my initial stance. I'm glad you've uh, joined me here. Yeah. It's how I felt, too. I just wasn't annoyed with the movie because I... You know, when I look back at the movie, I just picture the jazz club in the streets of New York and the beautiful lighting in his apartment and all of that. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, right. There was also that stuff with the, like, the outline people in uh, outer space, right. nowheresville. I just sort of <laughs> forgot it. Well, that says something. Yeah, I think John Baptiste has done really good work here. He really has. In a style that gets played at a lot. 
his obvious strength as an artist is being incredibly real and open and willing to just fool around and trying to bring something real to everything he does. It comes through, you know, like strutting down the street cues, and they're all very short cues, but each one of them I thought, oh, this is a thing that in other Pixar movies and other kinds of fun movies for kids, they'll do this kind of like, it's jazz, it's a jazz combo, they're having fun. And it always feels a little paint by numbers, and this felt like the real thing. He has exactly actually brought the right. real thing to this. Yeah, exactly right. This felt like a natural and organic home for that kind of jazz combo feel to be truly expressive, and he's really living in it and generating such attractive sounds out of it. Yeah, I just loved hearing it. I just wish, I think he could have given you more. I mean, I think my favorite thing in the music in this movie is in the middle of that hospital slapstick sequence, he gives himself a little solo and does some, like, abstract, atonal surprise right. piano solo <laughs> for a few bars. Hearing that in juxtaposition with Cat in the Hospital slapstick felt great. I thought, like, we can do this. We don't need to be afraid to do what you just did. <laughs> yeah. Keep going, man. I'm loving it. And there were only a few moments where they let him do that. Yeah. Then again, on the other hand, yeah, there's this American Beauty moment where we have to contemplate the deep meaning of leaves in the air. Again, who gets this assignment? It's happening in the streets of New York, but it's about the real deep meaning of life and the underlying beauty of everyday things. And I think they assigned it to the wrong people and Reznor and Ross are doing this, you know, a different Thomas Newman knockoff this kind of dreamy thing that sounds like it wishes it was American Beauty. Uh, I don't know. I wish I wasn't as much of a grump here because <laughs> I really liked a lot about this movie. John, it's because before you were born, you were assigned grump personality. There's nothing you can do about it. I believe it. <laughs> I saw Reznor and Ross said that you know, they had to think hard about how to characterize this kind of empty space when he gets dropped on the conveyor belt to death because it was a subtle thing. You want that space to be not overtly frightening, but not comforting, not safe, but not dangerous, not clear, but not scary. And they said that they delivered something like 50 stems on the same piece. And they were like, now you guys can turn up or down, whichever you want. We've got one of them is scary. One of them is, is soothing. They had, in fact, been asked for the music, like, what should the music in Soul World sound like? And the answer was, it should sound like everything. Um, that music is their attempt, I guess, to sound like everything. Which is ridiculous and impossible. And I think that, you know, trying to find a technical solution to a spiritual problem means you end up saying that uh, spirituality sounds technical. And vice versa. Yeah, I guess. Right. I was going to say there's a somewhat uncomfortable implication in this movie that, you know, it's a laudable cultural agenda on the other side is, you know, like, this is a black family in New York who cares about jazz and that's a world. That's the world that this meaningful life takes place in. Oh, but what's really going on? 
Uh, you know, like some computer music by Nine Inch Nails. That's what really makes everything tick. <laughs> yeah. And they have a credit at the end, music and cultural consultants. Yeah, and there's a lot of them. And there's a lot of them. And that's because they care about depicting the jazz club and the guy's life in this way that I right. believed and that felt good. Including, you know, who one of the cultural consultants was, was the other uh, late night talk show band leader who was involved in this movie. The other late night talk? I don't know who that is. Is Questlove does the voice of the drummer. Oh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, if they make more movies in that world with John Batiste playing the music, that would be great. And I'm happy that John Batiste got nominated for score, although he gets a weird credit on this movie. Yeah, I wish they didn't do this credit. I mean, it's kind of a ripoff that Reznor and Ross got original score by and Batiste got jazz compositions and arrangements by because I think the scoring that Batiste did is more important to the movie. And it suggests that what he wrote were somehow compositions that then got laid against the movie by someone else, but no. it seems clear that that's not the case. Yeah. He was scoring very specific assignments. Absolutely. Yes, they had very specific scoring assignments for some of the things, and then for others, equally obvious that they animated the movie around his music, and in either case, he deserves a better credit than that. Yeah, and, you know, his performance as Joe playing the piano is pivotal as character definition. You know, yes. what that guy plays when he goes in the zone and plays an indulgent solo, that's characterizing him. That's, like, the most important thing in the movie. So Batista's contribution there is not just jazz compositions. It's right. this movie. Yeah, friend of the show, Cliff, our Academy correspondent, was telling me that the Academy rules are that only two people are allowed to be nominated for original score. Is John Batiste not nominated? No, he, he is nominated, but they had to invoke a extra rule corollary that allows people to be nominated as a group. And this was instituted when there started to be more bands mm -hmm. doing scores. And, you know, you had to nominate the whole group of them as opposed to there was allowed to be up to two individuals. So like when Reznor and Ross won the Oscar for The Social Network, they each got their own statue because they were the two people that were allowed. If they win this time, they are all three of them going to have to share one statue because they have officially been nominated as a group. That is so asinine. And I feel bad for John Batiste. I agree. I would like to think think that in the perhaps likely case that this wins that they'll let Batiste take the Oscar home because they already have one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we haven't even mentioned, but yeah, it's Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. He's a major film composer now. People have been suggesting to us that we talk about The Social Network and it's in our list, so it might come up someday. Sure. But we don't need to go into too much detail, but it continues to be a weird thing sure. that Trent Reznor is a major film composer. Yeah. Some people want us to talk about that score like an animal. <laughs> I thought also about how can I make reference to anything else about Trent Reznor, and I thought, well, I just don't have to, but you have no, I didn't have to either. a disgusting way to do it. <laughs> do you know what a tenuous connection to our previous episode subject is? To Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Yeah. Um, Robert Patrick's brother, Richard Patrick, was in Nine Inch Nails for a few years. <laughs> Did I know that? I think maybe I did come across that as I was looking stuff up about the Terminator. But uh, okay, there you go. <laughs> there you have it. That's quite a connection. If that doesn't sum it all up, I don't know what will. All right. Speaking of summing it all up, Andy, let's do it. Yeah. Let's let's be done and let's say what do you think is going to win and what would you like to win? I, as usual, have no idea. I think even more than usual, I have no idea. Well, that's what I said. I was going to say, John, that's like asking me where your cat is right now. 
I don't know where your cat is right now. It's wherever it wants to be. <laughs> Are you talking about my actual cat? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know who's going to win. What the, uh, the Academy is going to pick one of these as the best. Yeah, whatever. They can do whatever they want. It's just like watching some animal walk around. I'm not in charge of it. <laughs> All right. I have to guess. I am going to guess, um, you know, Minari certainly was one that moved me the most. I don't think it will win. Hmm. I don't think it will win because it doesn't remind the Academy of movie scoring. That's just not what they think of when they think of movie scores. I think Minari has a decent shot of winning. That's where I am. But again, I'm going to repeat that. My radar feels off this year. I don't know what. But I think it's possible Minari wins because it's a highly regarded movie, because the music in it is unusual, and it's memorable for being unusual. I think this kind of artsier film that is critically acclaimed, you know, this one's in a foreign language most of the time. This is the kind of thing that the Academy likes to go to for score when they wouldn't necessarily tend to go to it for more major awards. Okay. I think the likely winners I would narrow down to Soul and Minari. Okay. So you don't think that it's possible that Mank will not get acting or directing or picture awards and people will look at it and they'll be like, but it was impressive. It had all that technical work. It had music. I remember it had all kinds of music. I'll vote for that. (laughs) I don't think so. I mean, will the Reznor and Ross vote get split between their two nominees? I don't know if that happens. I don't know. Maybe to five bloods win. Maybe Terrence Blanchard gets like a lifetime achievement sort of recognition, which I would not at all be opposed to. My vote would go to Minari. I think Minari was definitely the best marriage of music and movie. Soul has won some of the other awards this season, so that seems to be... I think it won the Golden Globe in this category, right? Yeah, which isn't always correlative to what wins the Oscar, but could be. My prediction, which I agree is a wishy-washier prediction than I've had in years past when I've called out Stone Cold mm-hmm. Locks for things and was right about them. I'm saying either Minari or Soul this time, and I would vote for Minari. Boy, I could really go for some Stone Cold Locks. That sounds delicious. I'm willing to declare that if News of the World wins, I will be real surprised. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's that's my prediction. <laughs> you know, James Newton Howard is definitely a Oscar caliber composer. Uh, I don't think he's won, but easy to imagine him, you know, the right project really finding him and vaulting to the top. You know, we do this episode every year because we spend most of our time talking about movies that are decades old. And it's fun, interesting to check in with the current day. Yeah. But uh, as we said... We don't really have a clear sense of the current day. Maybe nobody does. And do you feel like you learned anything or felt anything coherent as a result of watching these five weird movies? About the current day? Just that it was a weird day. Yeah. And last year, you said, you know what I think should have been nominated. But guess what? You can't this year because you didn't see anything else. I I didn't see any movies. Yeah, that occurred to me. (laughs) That I wasn't going to be able to do that segment of this show. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Listen. It's weird for everybody, right? Next year, next year, I will have seen, I can tell you right now, a lot of movies. I was thinking, especially in light of our previous episode where we tried our best to come to terms with what's going on in something like Terminator 2 and whether it's the kind of stuff we usually like to talk about, I was thinking that the particular art of film scoring that we started this show because we enjoy digging into it is sort of just one angle on how to put music into movies. And it does feel like as a whole movies aren't taking that road as often anymore. Hmm. Like the idea of music as a speaking voice using musical discourse to kind of contribute musical meaning in parallel in conjunction with the movie is the thing that I'm most excited about. And it does feel like it's it's given way to different kinds of mood setting music 
and reference making music in some ways maybe a kind of postmodern use of that technique like this is old movie music but the point of it here is that it's quote movie music right and yeah, whenever we sort of step outside the great classics theming of the show to check in with the present day, I do feel like, yeah, the thing we're talking about, this is a little bit of a dinosaur topic. It's not really the way huh. movie music works these days. But I only half feel that. What are your thoughts about that? I think that's a fair and interesting characterization of this crop of nominees. I am going to optimistically say that I don't believe that that is a broader trend I think that there is still a lot of really interesting and exciting film scoring, qua film scoring, in the sense of film scoring that we have been talking about this whole time. And uh, I bet you that we're going to find some more satisfying examples of that next year. That's my bet. I'll take that bet. That sounds good. And, you know, I don't want to be demarcating that we're talking about one thing and these are some other things. I hope that we're keeping the conversation flexible enough to take whatever, you know, there is no one way to do movie scoring. And that's one of the wonderful things about it. And that's an important takeaway. And I think an important thing that we have really kind of come to learn again and again doing these Oscar episodes is that there are a lot of different ways to do movie scoring. So let's put that to the test, Andy. It's time to once again bring out our trusty rusty bucket here and draw. <laughs> Every time I ask you if we can not say bucket, now you're just making the bucket more elaborate. It's got adjectives. It's got a face. It's got googly eyes on it. Fine. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not even gonna, I'm not gonna tell you how many googly eyes I put on it. But all right, all right. I think it's my turn to draw sure a movie. And like you, you said, our stipulations from last episode were that it's gonna be a movie that we only have to watch one of, and we should try to have it be less than two and a half hours. Don't know what I can promise you because uh, we genuinely are doing a random drawing. Let's see what happens. But yeah, I am excited to get thrown back towards something. Okay, I have reached my hand into this uh, rotating bucket of balls and I'm pulling one out. Oh boy, Andy, I have drawn Young Frankenstein. 1974, the Mel Brooks movie with his score by John Morris. Hey, remember like five ago you said you want to do a comedy and we got Back to the Future, which isn't quite a comedy? This is a comedy. This is for sure a comedy. It's a funny comedy. This is a classic. Yeah, I mean, when I was 12 years old, I loved this movie and I don't think I've seen it since then. So let's watch Young Frankenstein. I have seen it since I was 12 years old. I still remember loving it. I think John Morris has a lot to do with why. So let's do it. That'll be cool. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fun. Okay, we have an assignment. It's one movie. It's a short movie too, right? Yeah, I think so. 105 minutes. Yeah. Not even two hours. Fantastic. All right, this is going to be a breeze. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Thanks a lot for bearing with us on this uh, overlong annual tradition that we have mm -hmm. made ourselves do. Yes, we do it because we must. <laughs> but you listen by choice. And for that, we're grateful. Very grateful. And we're very grateful to those who have written in to us to tell us that they enjoy it. And we're very grateful to those who have written reviews saying that they enjoy it on the various places where you can write reviews. So hint, hint. Both hint, hint and thank, thank. Also, feel free to chime in, pitch us scores for the bucket, and tell us what we got wrong on Twitter, at Scoresettlers. All right, Andy, we got our wish. One short movie for next time. I'd like to thank the Academy. <laughs> Andy, I would like the Academy to thank you. Uh -huh. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.